Home Institute exists to help in the great and continuing work of building a more equal, open, tolerant and independent Australia. I do not for a moment believe that we should set limits on what we can achieve together for our country, for our people, for our future. Welcome to the Whitlam Institute podcast. Hi, I'm Leanne Smith, Director of the Whitlam Institute. In this episode, hear the discussion at our Western Sydney Human Rights and Technology Consultations, part of a national review by the Australian Human Rights Commission. This was recorded at the Institute on the 20th of March, 2019. Well, good evening, everyone, and thank you for joining us here at the beautiful Female Orphan School at the Whitlam Institute this evening um, for what is gonna be a wonderful consultation, I hope, on the Australian Human Rights Commission's national project on human rights and technology. Allow me to introduce you to Uncle Greg Sims, who is a wonderful friend of this institute. Uncle Greg is a Western Sydney University elder on campus. He's also a Gadigal elder. He's well known as an activist for reconciliation, an incredible traditional woodcarver, a storyteller, and an educator of Aboriginal culture. Uncle Greg's ties to the Aboriginal community of Greater Western Sydney are through his ancestral links to the Gundunguru, the water dragon lizard people of the Blue Mountains, and also the Gadigal whale people of the Darug Nation. He grew up in La Perouse, but he's now a resident of Greater Western Sydney. So please join me in welcoming Uncle Greg. Firstly, I would like to say good evening to all. Good evening. Good evening. <laughs> what a me, Barak. Hello, friends. It's good to see you. My name's Greg Sims. Everyone knows me as Uncle Greg. Firstly, I would like to acknowledge we are on Darak land. I would like to acknowledge elders past and present. We don't own the land. The land owns us. We come from Mother Earth. We are the land. And the land upon today belongs to the Batamatical tribe of the Dalek Nation, the Eel people. Where I fit in, I come from the Gadigal tribe of the Dalek, which is based in Sydney, and there I belong to the Whale people. We are one, a few of the 35 tribes of the Dalek Nation throughout the Sydney-based area. Also belong to the Gunton Gunton Nation in the Blue Mountains. I am one of the Aboriginal elders of Western Sydney. And to become an elder, you have to do lots and lots of work in your community before you get respect in return. And we as elders, we go out and teach how to break down barriers and build bridges. We are out there in the community trying to turn people's lives around. So when people come to this sacred country, they forget that our people are the First Nation people of this sacred land. And they think all Aboriginal people throughout this country speak the same language. You know, we, we, have, we have well over 500 di dialects in this country. In New South Wales, we have well over 136. So this must be the multicultural country before settlers came in 1788 and the ones that followed. By saying this, we are all Australians. And we as Aboriginal elders, we don't exclude people from the circle. We love people to come to the circle, share their values and stories. We will never have knowledge if we don't do this. And once we start learning from each other, 
then heading in the into the right direction towards reconciliation. I remember my auntie Susie used to say, the music will always sound better if we use both the black and white keys. And I think it's a beautiful saying because we're all one mob, we're all one people. It's not about you and us, it's about all of us coming together. And when we talk about the human rights, I think it's time that we sort of all came together and listen to a lot of Aboriginal people tell their stories because we, because when you look at the diverse of Aboriginal people, you, you get the stories, you'll say someone's telling lies here, but no one's telling lies because, when you, because we're coming from different customary areas where we where the different things represent us in, in that fashion, in that particular area. So, um, where we live today is one community, many cultures. And one of the main things I do today, I support Muslim communities within the Sydney-based area. And I must say that my heart goes out to the people of Christchurch what has happened, and I just hope that it never happens again, and I just hope it never happens here in this country. But this, the government needs to clean up a lot of stuff and get rid of all these bad things that we have in this country because it's going to get worse before it gets better. So thank you for having me. I'd just like to acknowledge um, the Royal Commissioner, um, Ed Santo, for being here with us today. Thank you, uh, Leanne, for having me here. Like that, and and other distinguished guests we may have here, and all you wonderful people that showed up. I just like to say um, before before we uh, before we take our next step, just remember the ones that walked this sacred land before. Tiari Mara, Dadaka Pemel, Kawi Maria Pemel, the Gatarigi Babana, my name of Waranang, Nai Desi Guy, Diana Gami Jatalang, the Gatarigi Tiari, the Gatarigi, the Gami Guy, Guya Gunagal, Dagonagal, Dala Lawi Mukakabala Nagami, this is Lawi Nitrimi Gunagal, Jami Tiari, the Gatarigi or the Germana, Midga Garang Barak Nina Dadaka Pemel, Didrigal. This is Dadak lands, the land of ancestors. There's spirits that walk among us. Spirits that have been here since the dream time. Our language and our culture have been passed down from generation to generation to continue an unbroken culture that has extended for thousands of years. In the language of our people, we welcome you to Dadak lands. Thank you and have a great evening. <laughs> Thank you, Uncle Phil. I'll see you next time. For the dance next time. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, I'd also like to pay my respects to the traditional owners of this land, the Darug people of the Darug Nation. I acknowledge the wrongs done to Australia's first people in the past, and I call for the wrongs that remain to be righted. So at the Whitlam Institute, for those of you who don't know us as well as some others might, I see a lot of new faces in the audience tonight. 
Here we're interested in a couple of things. We're interested in the future of Australian democracy. We're interested in how Australia engages with the world. We're also interested in community engagement and civic education for all Australians, especially for young Australians. Every day in this place, we work to fulfil Gough Whitlam's hopes for this institute, that we help the great and continuing work of building a more equal, more open, more tolerant and more independent Australia. Human rights, of course, were a central part of Gough Whitlam's legacy for all Australians, and they form a central part of all the work we do across our different programs here. We're delighted to support the Australian Human Rights Commission's National Consultation on Human Rights and Technology, which explores the rapid rise of new technologies and what they mean for our human rights. In addition to research and expert engagement, the Commission is committed, as we are at the Institute, to public consultation. So we were absolutely thrilled to have tonight's event sold out. Um, and we're thrilled for the communities of Western Sydney to be part of this national consultation process. We can't wait to hear what you all have to say and the questions you have on your minds, and I'm sure Ed's going to be able to answer them all. <laughs> um, so look, we're live streaming this event and we're recording video and podcast for our website. And as just one small example of the need to balance accessibility and privacy, we've sought permissions and exemptions from all of those who RSVP'd so that we would be able to do so tonight. So we're also accepting comments and questions through Facebook and through Twitter at um, hashtag RightsTechAU. So for those who weren't able to physically make it here this evening, we're still welcoming um, your thoughts and your comments and we encourage you to follow the discussion online. Tonight we're very lucky to have Ed Santo with us, Australia's Human Rights Commissioner. Ed has been Human Rights Commissioner since August 2016. He leads the Commission's work on detention and implementation of the optional protocol to the Convention Against Torture, OPCAT. He works on refugees and migration, human rights issues affecting LGBTI people, counter-terrorism and national security, technology and human rights, which is what we're here to discuss tonight, freedom of expression and freedom of religion. Ed is a senior visiting fellow at the University of New South Wales and he serves on a number of boards and committees, including the Australian Pro Bono Centre. From 2010 to 2016, Ed was chief executive of the Public Interest Advocacy Centre, a leading non-profit organisation that promotes human rights through strategic litigation, policy development and education. He was previously a senior lecturer at the University of New South Wales Law School, research director at, Gil at the Gilbert and Tobin Centre of Public Law, and a solicitor in private practice. So Ed will now take about 20 minutes to give us some background to the Human Rights and Technology Project, what's happened to date, and where things will go from here, before we open up the discussion to all of you for your comments and your questions and your feedback. And we should have just under an hour for that broader conversation. So with no further ado, let me invite Ed to come and give um, his presentation. Thank you, Ed. Thank you very much, Leanne, for that warm introduction. Um, it's a great pleasure and an honour to be here. Uh, on behalf of the Human Rights Commission, I'd like to acknowledge the fact that we're meeting on Darug land, um, and uh, this is uh, Aboriginal land, uh, but it is not anymore occupied by um, Australia's Aboriginal people, by the Darug people. And that difference, obviously, uh, 
caught up in that is a couple of hundred years of injustice and failure to recognise human rights. Um, I thought our Uncle Greg's welcome was, was really profound. Um, I, I loved the way he reminded us that in a country like Australia, where you have 500 or more different language groups, the white people in Australia didn't herald in any way multiculturalism. And actually, there's a link to, uh, to what, one of the themes that I'm going to be um, talking about now. Um, we, when we talk about uh, technology and the rise of new technology, we talk about the opportunity to innovate and how important innovation is. In a country like Australia, which is, which is very beautiful in many respects, but is also can be harsh, uh, you have to be pretty bloody innovative to not just survive for over 40,000 years, but to thrive. And Australia's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have done just that. So there's a great deal we can learn about innovation by looking to Australia's First Nations people. Uh, it's, it's a particular pleasure to be here. Leanne is someone that I've admired from afar for, for many years, not just um, in her work leading uh, the Whitlam Institute, uh, but in her work in promoting human rights many years ago at the Human Rights Commission, um, but uh, basically everywhere between Australia and Afghanistan. Um, and so uh, I really like to pay tribute to your own contributions. Um, but, but I'm here tonight to focus on new technologies and particularly artificial intelligence. Uh, and I want to acknowledge that some really, really amazing things happening in artificial intelligence or AI. It is profoundly changing our world. Anybody who's come here with a smartphone, you are already using AI. Anybody who may receive a benefit from Centrelink, you, one way or another, have either been the victim of AI, if you've been caught up in the robo-debt scandal, or you've been passed over by the AI gods. And there are so many other examples of, of how AI is not just steadily, but quickly being rolled out and being integrated into almost every aspect of our life, of our lives. And, and while I'm excited about many aspects of this, it's my melancholy duty as Human Rights Commissioner to perhaps focus a little bit more on the risks and threats that AI poses. So I will focus a bit on those. And frankly, if we don't get this right, the stakes are really high. And this could be one of the biggest threats to humanity. So that got dark quite quickly. So before I go and really depress you about some of the things that we at the Human Rights Commission are worried about when it comes to the rise of AI, I want to shift gears a little bit and start with something a little bit more hopeful. And I actually have a question for all of you. So you'll see behind me and to my left a painting. And so I've got a multiple choice question for all of you. The question is, who painted this painting? Don't answer me yet. The three options are A, Rembrandt, B, Vermeer, or C, none of the above. You've got to commit to one of those three. This being a university, if you get it wrong, you may have to sit the test again at some point um, in the university holidays. So put up your hand if you think it's A, Rembrandt, who painted this painting. A few. B, Vermeer. A few more. Dutch. Yeah. Right. C, none of the above. That's a lot going with C. You're all right, anyone who guessed C. If you guessed A, you get partial credit. I'm not going to make you resit um, the exam. So this, this painting um, has been obsessing me for the last few months since I came across it. It is 
It is a Rembrandt, or it has certainly been described as a Rembrandt painting, but it's a Rembrandt that was painted um, in the last couple of years, which is amazing because Rembrandt's been going through a, a fallow period uh, for the last little while. He's produced very few paintings. He, frankly, he's produced almost nothing since he died. And yet this is a new Rembrandt. It, it was, as I say, it was painted in the last couple of years. And the way it was painted is, is kind of amazing. It, it was using um, artificial intelligence techniques. Essentially what happened was a bunch of researchers fed into a computer every single Rembrandt painting that, it, that, that, that we all know about. And using AI and machine learning techniques, it essentially said to the computer, learn how Rembrandt painted and give us a new one. And this is what it came up with. So that, that person that you can see there, it's not, it's not a replica of some other painting. That person didn't exist. It's not based on um, an individual who, who existed out there. This is painted, in inverted commas, using, um, using AI and machine learning. And, and I guess one of the things that, that's keeping me awake at night about this is, until I came across this painting, I said, well, look, you know, there are all kinds of ways in which AI is developing rapidly, but don't worry, there are some things that are quintessentially human that we don't have to worry about. And the main one is art, right? Um, and yet this is actually really bloody hard to distinguish between a painting like this and a painting that a human is, has done. Now I acknowledge, and this is really important, that, that the way in which this was painted is very different from the way humans paint. Um, but, but nevertheless, uh, it is certainly the kind of thing that, that can trick us. And it's not just this particular artistic medium. You can choose almost any artistic medium. So there's all kinds of music that has now been produced using AI. Um, you can tell uh, AI to um, write another Shakespeare play if you want. It's not good, um, but if you don't listen to it very carefully, it does sound like Shakespeare, um, or at least sort of Shakespearean type language. So it's, it's kind of fascinating. And, and I think we should remember this uh, this sort of thing for the kind of the, the, the scale of change that AI can bring in and, and how it challenges us as humans. Um, but while I'm still on a few positive notes, I, I want to give a couple of examples of how AI can actually change our lives for the better. Um, it's often said that personal information is the fuel of AI. What that simply means is that artificial intelligence needs to learn from data and if it's to interact with us, as, as AI does, um, ideally it learns about our data. In other words, it learns from our personal information. It learns about us. Uh, and that's pretty fundamental to some of the, the, the really big changes we're seeing around us. I've given a couple of examples on that slide. One is self-driving or autonomous cars. Those learn from humans. Hopefully um, they'll learn you know, some of the things that I do that you perhaps shouldn't do, um, as well as some of the things that, that, that are really important um, in understanding how uh, drivers operate on the road. And then the, the, other, the other example there is one of the home assistants, that's the one by uh, Google, there's another one, uh, or there's another famous one by Amazon, as well as other companies as well. And they too learn from us, um, learn from the way in which we um, interact with the world. And they also learn from their interactions with us. And so to date, when we've talked about some of the human rights risks associated with AI, we've particularly focused on the risk to our personal privacy. 
Uh, and that's a really important thing. We're right to focus on that risk because whenever our personal information is engaged, then that does uh, bring about a, a risk or a threat to our privacy. Without detracting from the importance of that, there's been much less attention on all of the other human rights that are engaged. And one of the key features of our consultation to date is that right across Australia, people have been saying that they're kind of waking up to the idea that a whole bunch of our other rights are at stake as well. And some of those other rights really cut to the core of what it means to be human. Um, and so I'm going to focus in on one example of that. So the $3 word for this is algorithmic bias. If you've never come across that term before, it's basically a fancy new term to describe uh, discrimination that arises uh, when algorithms are used to make decisions and particularly in the context of AI or artificial intelligence. So um, how does this, this, this concept of algorithmic uh, bias arise? Well, I said before that AI learns from information, particularly commonly it learns from personal information. So you feed into it large, what, what is sometimes called big data sets. Um, so take, uh, for example, uh, facial recognition technology. It, you, you would feed into that, um, that AI application a data set of maybe 10, 20, 30,000 photos and you would help the AI to learn how to recognise facial features and from that to learn how to identify people. Um, and so uh, that, that's, that's basically how it works. What we've found, however, is that artificial intelligence, and particularly in this case, facial recognition technology, can be less accurate. It can make more mistakes in respect of some parts of our population over others. So it is less accurate when you talk about people with darker skin than with uh, people who, are, who have lighter skin. It's less accurate in women than men and various other examples. So I, I want to give a, a specific example of this. There's this amazing uh, research project that's being run out of MIT in the United States. It's called the Gender Shades Project. So if you're interested in it, feel free to Google it. And I realise that just mentioning Google in this context <laughs> is slightly ironic. Anyway, putting that to one side. So, what they, what they did was they set the bar pretty low. They said, let's work out what are the three market-leading facial recognition applications out there and let's see how successful they are, not at identifying individuals, but something much easier than that. Just identifying whether a picture, a photo, is of a man or a woman. So all they had to do, it's 50-50, you can get it right 50% of the time just by guessing, um, male or female, right? Um, and they started... And, and they wanted to know whether it was more accurate or less accurate in respect of different um, parts of our population. So they started with what's known as the Pilot Parliament's Benchmark. Um, and what that um, is designed to do is to show the kind of breadth um, in skin colour, um, the variety in skin colour that we have across any kind of multicultural um, society. Uh, and then what they did was they set it loose on those three market-leading 
um, visual uh, facial recognition technology. So one was Microsoft, the other one was Face++, and the other one was um, IBM's. The overall accuracy was really interesting. The overall accuracy was somewhere north or south of 90%. And let me just pause there. Because remember, all it's being asked to do is work out whether the, the photo is a male or a female. So it gets it right nine out of it every 10 times. That's actually pretty bad. It's a lot worse than anybody in this room. When you think about how rarely you would misgender someone, how rarely you would mistake a man for a woman or vice versa, it would not be one in every 10 people. It would be very, very, it'd be vanishingly rare that you would make that mistake. Um, nevertheless, uh, so, so this technology on the whole is, is a lot less accurate than we are as humans. Um, and then what they did was they said, well, let's see how accurate it is on um, people with darker skin as, as uh, distinct from lighter skin. And, and as I said to you before, it is much more accurate um, in respect of people who basically look like me. So white middle-aged men, um, it's pretty accurate. So anywhere between 95 and over, just over 99% accurate at at least gauging, um, uh, uh, gauging someone's gender. Um, it is a lot less accurate in respect of people with darker skin, um, as you can see some of the figures behind me. And then if you intersect uh, skin colour and gender, um, it is a lot less accurate when, for example, you have someone who's dark skin who happens also to be female. So why does that all matter? Well, it matters because this form of technology, facial recognition technology, is being rolled out it's already operating and it's being rolled out increasingly in all kinds of areas, everywhere from banks are using this technology and other financial institutions, as well as our police, our um, Department of Foreign Affairs, Border Force and, and, and so on. So I want to give an example of, uh, of, of where this was trialled um, in the UK. So the, this is perhaps the most famous trial in the UK um, just under a year ago, the London Metropolitan Police uh, basically used this facial recognition technology in a really practical scenario. They said, well, you know, we, there's a whole bunch of people um, that we haven't been able to identify that we think have all committed crimes. Um, can you tell us who they are? And so uh, it came up, with the, the, um, the application they used came up with 104 matches. Um, which, is, which is amazing. The problem is that 102 of them were wrong. So only two of them were accurate, in other words. Now, the London Metropolitan Police put an interesting spin on this. Um, and I have a tiny bit of sympathy, but no more than a tiny bit of sympathy. They said, well, we were looking for all of those people. And those two people that they got right, well, that's that's good because we, they were among the people we were looking for. And that, that may well be true, but I can't get past quite the fact that they also got 102 of them wrong, right? And getting it wrong matters because in between, when you make the mistake in identifying someone as being on a terrorist watch list or some kind of uh, wanted criminal, and when you realize you've made the mistake, all kinds of really bad things can happen. The police have powers in Australia and the UK and everywhere to take coercive action that impinges and can violate our human rights if they've identified someone as perhaps having committed a crime. They can detain you, they can force you to um, undergo questioning, they can do all kinds of things. And so if we rely 
really heavily on technology that is fascinating, is exciting, I acknowledge all of that, but is basically a lot less accurate than any of us, and we know humans aren't that accurate at being able to identify people, then these sorts of problems are bound to occur. And when I say problem, what I mean is, at worst, a human rights violation. We should take that really seriously. And then when you overlay that fact on what I just said before, that the technology on the whole is more accurate in respect of people, as I say, who look like me, than it is in respect of people with darker skin, then we also know that this technology is going to cause more human rights problems for people in our community who are already over-policed, who are already over-subject uh, to human rights impingements and indeed even human rights violations. Um, and so that is something we should be deeply concerned about. So um, in a minute, I'm going to uh, be very glad to take questions from Leanne and from, from everybody else. Um, but the last thing I wanted to say is this. Uh, I, for the last sort of 15 minutes or so, I've very much been on transmit. Um, but really important to the work that we do uh, is um, very similar to uh, how Leanne articulated the Whitlam Institute's uh, modus operandi. And that is, we have to walk hand in hand with the community in the work that we do. This is a fascinating area. We at the Human Rights Commission are learning a great deal about this. We have, we think, some of the answers, but we need your help. We need uh, the community to walk with us, to ask us really searching questions, to send us on, on important um, journeys in, in terms of our research. And we also need to hear from you what you consider to be some of the risks and threats in terms of your human rights that um, AI and new technologies present, as well as some of the opportunities that we should also be seeking to grasp. And so the, the last thing I want to say is this. Uh, I, I, in a sense, I probably sound um, a little bit schizophrenic in the sense that I have said that I'm really excited about new technologies, how new technologies can improve our lives. They can actually make our lives more inclusive. They can in, indeed improve human rights protections. But all of that prospect, those positive prospects will be lost if we don't effectively identify and address the very serious harms that AI can bring with it. And uh, my, at least my initial view from our work to date on this project is that we haven't been diligent enough as a community um, and certainly in government in identifying the risks to our human rights and then being absolutely laser focused on addressing those risks. Um, just because a new technology is exciting, and a lot of this new technology is exciting, if it is going to cause harm, and we haven't yet been able to address that harm, then it's not ready to be used. And too often we're seeing uh, our, I guess, companies and, and, and even um, governments uh, get carried away with the excitement of all the new kit of AI and new technologies without addressing that fundamental question. What are the harms and how do we effectively address those harms? Because if we don't do that properly, there'll be a catastrophic collapse in community trust and all of the good things, all of the exciting things that AI brings will be lost. So with that, hand back to Leanne and, and as I say, happy to answer any questions.
Um, I don't know how many people in the room are as familiar with the process you've been going through so far. Um, for those of you who haven't seen it yet, um, this is the issues paper that the Commission issued in July last year, um, available from the website. Um, and it's an incredibly interesting read. And it goes into a lot of detail and a lot of examples. So I thought I might start off by asking you if you could speak to a bit of what comes out of that paper, which is really um, to ask you to explain what type of technologies are raising human rights concerns. And you mentioned some of the rights involved, but what kind of rights are at risk in, in a broad yeah, sense? Yeah, great questions. And, and the two main documents we've put out so far are on the slide behind me. And the, that's the website that Leanne referred to in the bottom right-hand corner. Um, so in terms of the human rights that are engaged, I, I said most obviously privacy um, is engaged. Uh, but I guess what we've um, discovered as we've kind of gone around Australia is that people are just coming on to the fact that um, rights like equality and non-discrimination are also engaged. So previously the debate has been kind of around important issues but perhaps less profound issues. So the common situation of you know, you're, I'm sure you've all had this, right? Like you're, you're searching online for something. You know, in my case recently, a, a new pram. Um, and then you finish that unhappy task and <laughs> for weeks afterwards, every website you go to, they are selling you prams or whatever it happens to be, right? It's kind of unsettling, um, it's, it's annoying. Um, but maybe not a lot more than that. And yet we focused especially on that relatively less significant impingement of our privacy. But what our consultation today has shown is that actually the real risk is that our personal information can be used against us. I just want to repeat that because that's, that, that's different from privacy as it's narrowly conceived. It's, it's that our personal information can be used against us. And so that means that engages, as I say, the right to equality or non-discrimination. It, it depends on the context, but I gave an example of it being used in the criminal justice context, uh, where it can engage the right to a fair trial. Here in New South Wales, the New South Wales police have a, um, a list of, of young people uh, between the ages of 12 and 25. It's called the Suspect Target Management Plan. It's about 1,800 people, and the police frequently go and check on those, check in inverted commas, on those 1,800 people. Uh, it can be in their homes, it can be, you know, in their schools, TAFE, um, at work, um, because they are worried that they, those people are going to commit a crime. Um, it's a very, very difficult experience being on that list. Now, in my previous work um, as, a, as a lawyer, as a human rights lawyer, we kept on finding that so many of our clients were either uh, Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander or from a Middle Eastern background and we thought why what, what's going on here um, and anyway to cut a long story short what, what turned out what it turned out was that 56% uh, of people on that list the STMP are Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander in Australia despite the fact that less than 3% of the New South Wales population population is Indigenous and getting on that list that's the kicker it is the application of an algorithm we don't know anything more than that. That's the information that finally, after years of probing, came out in uh, the state parliament just over a year ago, was that it's an algorithm. Essentially, it's a computer that works out who goes on that list and who doesn't. Uh, it certainly isn't, you know, at least in terms of my former clients, um, the absolute worst of the worst criminals. It can be 
people who've had quite trivial offences, um, or at least accused of quite quite trivial offences. And, and so that, that's a real problem. So the context really matters in which this sort of technology is deployed. And so that raises a whole series of, of new human rights issues. Thank you. I'm going to hand over to you guys for questions now, but I have one for you, a, a multiple choice question for you as well. And don't worry, there's a get out of get out of jail clause at the end of it, so don't feel compelled. But we wanted to talk about some practical examples tonight, and um, you already mentioned robo-debt. I mean, My Health Records is another one that a lot of us have been talking about. So I wondered if, if, you, if I could get a show of hands for those of you who have stayed signed up, those of you who have decided to stay out of it for now, and those of you who think it's just too personal and you wouldn't be comfortable sharing that. So first of all, those who are still in My Health Record, show of hands. Great. Those of you who decided to opt out for one reason or another. And those of you who just think that's really personal information that she wouldn't want to share tonight. <coughs> okay, interesting, thanks. So that's some, you know, these are the kind of practical issues that are facing everyday people, whether it's parents worrying about what their kids are doing online, people who have difficulty accessing the internet, um, privacy issues, social services, those kind of things. Just for the benefit of the video, I might um, just repeat some of the questions. So the, this question was, uh, essentially saying, what, why? What's the genesis of, of actually wanting to have AI and um, what's the kind of financial aspects to it as well? Uh, it's such a great question because uh, I think what AI does is something really, really novel and exciting. It can be really positive. It can help um, us wrangle large data sets and humans are really bad at that. So maybe I'll put that in more simple terms. Humans can make really bad decisions. And I, I realise as I'm saying that, I'm saying that as if I'm not a human. I can make really bad decisions. Any photo uh, that you see of me from the 1980s can show <laughs> some of the terrible decisions that I made, um, at least in terms of what I was watching, wearing. Um, that, to give a more serious example, there's a really, really interesting, I've talked about this a little bit before, there's a really, really interesting um, research study done overseas, but it could easily have been done in Australia about how decisions about parole are made. Um, and essentially what the researchers were trying to do was work out when a judge decides whether or not to release someone from prison on parole, what, what is really motivating them? What's, what's getting to the heart of that, that very human decision? And what they found was shocking to everybody. The researchers did not guess this. The biggest factor determining where, whether or not you get parole does anyone know this? Yeah, time of day. It's time of day. So if you happen to be the first one, and so they basically heard those cases in a list. If you happen to be the first one in the morning, um, you had about a 63% chance of getting parole. If you were the last person before lunch, it was less than 1%. If you're the first one after lunch, it bounced back up close to 63%. If you're the last one of the day, then it was vanishingly small again, less than 1%. Um, so computers don't get hangry, right? Like computers can make more rational decisions sometimes than we can. And so there's actually a really, really strong imperative for us to use AI wisely. <laughs> and that's, that's the, you know, there's a lot hanging on that word wisely to improve the way in which we make decisions. Um, so that, that I think is really important. And, and yes, there's definitely an economic um, imperative or financial imperative as well in using AI, 
but in the right context. And, and for some decisions, AI might well be better than us as, as humans. For other decisions, it might provide a really, really useful piece of the puzzle, but a human needs to make the ultimate decision. And then for other decisions, again, you may go, I don't want AI going anywhere. It does. There's no way it's going to be able to make an evaluative decision that may involve emotion. And sometimes the economic imperative, that the, the, the idea that, oh, well, we've got 10,000 people that we employ making decisions and we can just get one computer to make the decision, that maybe trumps what we should be thinking about when it comes to making better decisions, more rational decisions, more decisions that better accord with whatever the criteria that we're seeking to apply. To recap, the, um, the point that Miao was making was that essentially um, when visual or facial recognition technologies make mistakes um, that kind of can come down to skin colour, it's because that the data sets that they're trained on um, don't have enough um, diversity in them, be it skin colour, disability or whatever, um, but those data sets that are more, more diverse are not readily available. Um, and I think that's true, but I think they need to go out and find them. Whoever is developing these t new technologies shouldn't see that as an excuse. The fact that it is easy to come, or easier to come across you know, huge data sets of white people doesn't mean that you should just stop there. Um, I think, I think the imperative, I mean, the, the, the idea of algorithmic bias is really interesting because bias um, is essentially a form of mistake, right? And so if a facial recognition is coming up with, you know, misgendering someone, um, it's made a mistake. It means that the technology is actually not working as it should. Um, and so if, as a, if you're a tech company and you really care about this, um, you should really care about your accuracy and you, you know, it, it basically should be totally unusable if it's making decisions that are less accurate than humans. And in this case, those, ac those decisions are much less accurate than humans in a really damaging, dangerous way. So just to um, summarise that really excellent question, it's, it's essentially who's pulling the strings with AI? Is AI just a puppet? Does it reflect our own human prejudice? Again, such a great question. The, the, the short answer is yes. Um, that, that it is... Uh, so if, if you train AI on a data set, it is only going to be as accurate as the data set you've trained it on. So if, um, let's say, the New South Wales Police is training um, its algorithm or AI to work out who's at risk of the community based on previous convictions, then it is going to import a whole heap of historical prejudice. We know that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia have been over-policed for literally centuries. We know that they have been more likely to be convicted of crimes that are essentially crimes of poverty. We know that they've been convicted all too often by all white juries that don't necessarily offer them the same level of sympathy that they might to uh, a non-Aboriginal uh, or non-Torres Strait Islander person. So um, what the AI can end up doing is that it can import that prejudice and frankly entrench it. So it can actually make it worse. Um, and you know the other thing it can do is it can give the veneer of respectability that when you have a computer spitting out an answer it looks like oh, it must be a very objective answer rather than you know when you have someone who looks tired looks hungry um, and is kind of rolling their eyes like that you, you may be more likely to say oh well I'm not sure that they're particularly well placed to make a decision whereas the computer spits out these crisp 
um, recommendations that may or may not be accurate. And I hasten to say, in some instances, they're very accurate, but in some, they're not. AI has never been developed to protect human rights. It's primarily developed for business purposes to, to be successful in business, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But I think your point was essentially that there needs to be some authority that sits over the top and tests new AI applications to see whether they're going to cause harm and will um, uh, particularly infringe people's human rights. Um, and that's definitely one of the questions that we're consulting on now. So that's really, really useful comment. So the question there um, was how should AI handle the issue of consent and particularly in the context of people's data privacy. So consent is one of the really interesting issues that people have been speaking with us a lot about. Um, my health record was one of the contexts in which it arose. Um, and it's interesting because uh, I'm sure we've all experienced this before as well. You're online, you're faced with some you know, 10,000 word script um, and then in very big letters you say, I agree or I disagree. Um, and essentially when you click I agree in order to click through into the website that you're trying to um, access, you appear to be consenting to 10,000 words worth of material that where you may be signing away your rights. Um, I, I don't think that in any universe, and certainly not um, this universe, can that be seen as free and informed consent. I think um, we've probably over-aligned as a community, and particularly the business community, and, and government to some extent as well, have over-aligned on the kind of appearance of consent um, when in fact, people can be under enormous pressure to just click OK so that they can get through. So um, th there is a proper role for consent, but we need to have a more sophisticated understanding of what free and informed consent means. Um, and I guess um, linking that specifically to the context of data privacy, I guess what worries me about that is that it gives the illusion at some level, at least some legal level, that um, you've either been protected or you don't care about your privacy. Um, and the research data is really clear on this, and that's as clear in Australia as it is overseas, and that is when people are asked, do you care about your data privacy? They say, yes, I really, really care. And yet they feel they don't have much agency in being able to actually protect their data privacy because sometimes they feel like they're basically just held over a barrel that they need to access a particular website or service or whatever and so they just click without reading or, or thinking through the, the true implications. Can I please just uh, insert some of our virtual participants because this is very novel for us. Um, so just wanted to share some comments that are coming in um, on Facebook. They're mostly comments, um, Ed. Uh, the first is from Andrew on Facebook, he's overseas. He says, very cool topic. Um, working, over <laughs> working overseas in China and Vietnam, AI technology is advancing to even greater heights. It is affecting us m in more ways than one. In China last year, China produced a fully AI news anchor, could not tell the difference. So that's yeah. something, yeah. yeah, agreeing with that. Um, then I have a, a, a question, although it's a pretty grand one, from Keith on Facebook. He says, the question of our time, is artificial intelligence an existential threat to humanity? And I just want to flip that with another one <coughs> from Holly on Facebook, who asks kind of the other side of that coin in a way. She says, in an increasingly digital world, will an inability to access tech result in an inability to assert one's own human rights? Mm. I mean, 
Yes, is the answer to both questions. Should I, sorry, is, is AI an existential threat? I mean, anybody who's been looking at autonomous weapons and so on would be pretty horrified about what could happen. Um, the, you know, there are some great, in inverted commas, <laughs> scary, whatever you want to look, call it, fictional versions of this. Black Mirror is my particular favourite kind of dystopian vision, just sort of 20, 30 years into the future of where we could go and how um, AI can threaten us in, in really, really fundamental ways. Um, and it's also true, the flip side is also true, and it's, I accept that it's an oxymoron, um, that uh, if you lack access to technology, then essentially you're going to be increasingly shut out. And we've seen this time and time again, that a company or even a government agency will say, we're providing this new way of interacting with us. And it might be, you know, initially it might have been by email, then it might be, you know, um, through a chatbot um, and, and so on. Um, and then suddenly it becomes increasingly difficult to interact with a human. And then suddenly you can't interact with a human. Um, and so at some level, uh, we are all going to have to uh, engage with AI, whether we like it or not. Um, and that's, that's a profound change. Um, I, I, you know, it's not my place to try and you know, hold back the tide um, of tech change, like that would be like being King Canute. Um, but we do need to, I think, be clear-eyed about what's happening in our world um, and then make appropriate kind of responses as a community um, as to whether or not we think that that's a good thing. Um, and also, I guess, pragmatically preparing ourselves to, to, I guess, rise to those challenges. So two questions there. The first was about the growing use of AI and surveillance, and the second was about social credit scores in China. Um, so there's a bill, in fact, there are two bills, currently before the federal parliament, they're called the Identity Matching Services Bills, and they would bring about the biggest change ever in Australia in terms of enabling mass surveillance. Um, now, I have some colleagues here and they'll kill me, uh, not literally, but maybe literally, <laughs> if I run you through chapter and verse exactly how those um, bills would operate. And I promise I won't do that, but I'll, I will until they start looking daggers at me, just briefly explain what they would do because they're such an amazingly significant change. Essentially what they would do is this, they would enable um, whole range of federal, state, territory, government agencies, as well as a number of companies such as banks and other financial institutions to access what is known as this identity matching services capability, um, which would feed in all of the different kind of, well not all, but most of the different sources of video and photo that we have of people in Australia. So there are photos that you hold, sorry, that the government might hold because you've got a driver's license or a passport, or there may be CCTV footage that, um, that, that you know, a local council has taken of you. And it can be used in all kinds of ways. Now, some of those ways um, might, on balance, be entirely appropriate. You know, if, if it's being used at the border to determine whether you are who you claim you are, that there's a pretty strong reason to use um, that sort of uh, technological capacity for that purpose. But if it's, but it's also 
can be used for a range of other purposes as well, such as, as I said, by financial institutions when you're opening a bank account. Um, or in just general crime prevention, not, not, not to investigate a particular crime, not because you're being accused of a crime. Um, and so that, that breadth is really quite concerning to us at the Human Rights Commission, but it's also concerning um, when you kind of uh, accept what, if you accept what I said before, which is that the AI technology is, it may well be exciting, but it's not very accurate yet. <laughs> and so it will make mistakes. Um, and each mistake in a high stakes context is someone's human rights being violated. Um, and that's, that's really, really serious. So we are concerned about that legislation. We um, have urged that that legislation, that that bill, those bills be um, fundamentally rethought to put human rights protection at the very centre of them um, and make sure that, that, that they're not going to cause more harm than good. The second part of the question was about uh, the social credit score seems in, in China. So um, essentially the way this works, if you haven't come across um, social credit score schemes, is that in, it's, it's mostly done at the city-wide level. So in a number of major Chinese cities, um, each individual is given a score. Let's say um, it's a score between zero and 200. You start off usually on 100 points. If you do particularly good civic acts, you could get some points. If you do something bad, like um, jaywalking, uh, there could be CCTV footage that is used that is using AI facial recognition applications to take some points away. Um, you can also lose points by for buying too much alcohol. So there, there, it's not all about you know committing serious and minor offences. It's also things that the government believes is um, for whatever reason uh, undesirable. And then there are consequences for having a low score. So. Um, in the last couple of years, I think it was about 10 million people in China were deemed to have credit scores that were too low um, to allow them to catch a train or a plane. Um, so there are real significance, significant kind of impacts in having too low uh, one of these um, social credit scores. Do I think it's a good thing? No, I think it's terrible. <laughs> um, and I don't think it is consistent um, with the kind of liberal democracy that Australia and Australians um, want us to be, um, and, and frankly, what we are. Um, and so I'm not saying that Australia is, you know, on a direct path between here and um, a social credit score scheme. I'd, I'd like to think that there'd be rioting, rioting in the streets if that were proposed seriously by a government. But I do think we need to be really, really clear-eyed when we look at a practical real-world example, such as um, this, this example from China and saying, well, the steps between here and there are fairly numerous, but maybe less numerous than one might, you know, comfort yourself with. And we should be really, really careful um, to use that as a challenge to us to assert our human rights protections. This question basically was um, in linking um, AI in the healthcare context and particularly asking about what some of the implications are about using AI, or human rights implications about using AI um, in the healthcare and oncology context where the, obviously the stakes are particularly high. Um, but also for doctors, what does that mean, or clinicians, what does that mean? Does that mean that um, as AI is increasingly being used, does that call on quite a different skill? Um, namely, I think that the term was used as, a, as an algorithm monitor, um, and what, what might be the implications of that. So 
two things. Um, the first part of the question was, was really about what do I think about the rise of AI in, in medicine. Um, I think, you know, in its proper context, I think it's a good thing, right? There are certain things that um, AI can already do better than humans in that context. So um, it's, it's frequently said that uh, the AI, the specialised AI visual um, recognition applications are more effective at discerning between different classes of melanoma than um, trained humans are. Um, and so I guess if I'm being really, really practical and pragmatic about it, um, that's, that's a decision or that's a diagnosis that I really, really need to get right. Um, and so I guess I personally would want that to, uh, that, that, you know, to, to have the, the most accurate diagnosis. And if that involves AI, then um, in a sense, so be it. Um, but the second part of the question, but, but there are other things that, that AI doesn't do nearly as well. Uh, the second part of the question is, what does that actually mean for clinicians, doctors, medical professionals? And that question could equally be asked of any number of different um, categories of employee, professional or, or, or not. Um, and it's a really, really difficult question. I mean, I think this is challenging what we even think about when we talk about work. Um, the, the analogy I was giving earlier today was that AI is a bit like a horse. Um, and in the, at least the short to medium term, we as humans are going to be asked to be the jockeys. Um, but the problem is, for many of us, we've never seen a horse before. We don't know the word horse um, in the sense that we, we don't know enough about AI. Well, our training has kind of directed us to do the work of the AI of the horse, so to speak. Um, and if we are asked to do this other thing, to kind of oversee the work of the AI to use that as a data point. That may not be something we've ever been trained in. It may not be something we want to do. It may take out all of the kind of interesting, um, intellectually satisfying parts of our jobs. Um, and we may not want to do that. Um, and so we don't have an answer, unfortunately, to that. What we do know is that it's not easy to be the jockey, the AI jockey. That, um, that, you go right down to someone's anthropology that Genevieve Bell, in, um, based in ANU, has given some really, really interesting talks about this. She gave the Boyer lectures a couple of years ago um, where she touched on some of this. That, that we as humans can be incredibly deferential to computers, even when we know that the computer is not very good at a particular thing. If the computer says no, or if the computer basically spits out a particular answer, um, it's really, really hard for us as humans to withstand that because it comes with some, as I said before, like this sort of, it's, it's clothed in like all of this sense of objectivity and, and so on. And sometimes we should defer to it. Sometimes its capacity to come up with an answer is much better than ours, um, but sometimes not. And we're not very good at discerning between the two. Um, and so there's gonna be some profound changes that we need to make to education um, of the entire population, but then quite specific training about how AI operates in particular categories of, of job or profession. So I realise that's not a perfect answer, but, but it is, I think, a really important question that you've raised and one that, you know, I wouldn't be doing justice to its, you know, its depth if I just gave a, a pat answer, but we, we need to be looking at it. Another great comment, um, again, I'll try and summarise it really briefly. So AI is essentially iterative. 
um, it tries to learn from um, its past um, activity. Um, and that presents really, really difficult challenges for our legal system, due process, procedural fairness, and so on. Um, I basically agree with everything you just said. Um, <laughs> and I should just leave it there, but, but maybe I'll say something a bit personal um, and kind of disclose just how lucky I am. Um, so my, my dad was a lawyer. Um, he was actually a judge. And um, we didn't talk much about the law or, the or, or, him, or his work um, until, until he got really sick, until he was dying. And I asked him the question um, that I'd never asked him, but I wanted to ask him, which was, what do you think makes a good judge? And uh, I've, I've, I have mentioned this once or twice before in public, because it's really stuck with me. What he said was, a good judge is someone who can suppress their prejudices. And it stuck with me, I mean, he died more than 10 years ago, but it stuck with me because I kind of came back to it with this work. A good judge is someone who can suppress their prejudices. So you can only suppress your prejudices if you acknowledge something which is deeply uncomfortable, which is that we are all prejudiced. And dad, my dad, was, I know everyone says this about their parents, but my dad was such a nice man. <laughs> I, I never saw him be prejudiced in any way. Um, but I guess what he was saying was that that, that at some level we are, we, we do all have prejudices, or at least we make irrational judgments about things. And we need to be really rigorous in interrogating ourselves to uncover what those prejudices are, and then we can suppress them, right? Um, and the problem with the way in which AI is often developed, um, and particularly when it's used in a context like the one that you've just referred to, is that the prejudice is not coming to the surface and therefore is not being su suppressed. Um, and so while human judges are not always perfect about doing that, and my dad would have been the first to, person to acknowledge that he wasn't perfect, um, I think we're coming up with a really structural difficulty here if the technology isn't even trying to do that or it's not trying nearly hard enough to do that. And that's, that is a really important design flaw. The context of the question was, um, use of AI in social movements and how might AI be used to advance human rights, particularly in that context. Um, there, there are lots of examples of the way in which AI can advance human rights, particularly we, we've focused in our work today, particularly on um, the context of disability and inclusion, um, and there are lots of examples of that. Um, in the context of social movements, that's a really good question. I mean, I think um, what has been described by some, I'm choosing my words carefully because it's quite contested ground, but um, some people have, have said that um, the rise of some of the social media platforms have made it easier for like-minded people to come together, um, that some of the colour revolutions, for example, were in some ways sort of facilitated by um, people who couldn't safely congregate um, in the physical world being able to congregate online. Um, and I think that's probably true. The contested, contested nature of that is that, you know, um, some people have said that that's a bit exaggerated. But the other, the other aspect of that, that is, you know, some social movements are beneficial and as we tragically and horrifically saw in Christchurch last week, um, some are not. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, the, the notion that an individual who has really incipient, abhorrent, dangerous, damaging views might be able, through the aggregating effect of, of 
social media platforms find other people who with similar views and may um, come to the realization that she or he is not alone and maybe it's a more acceptable view than they thought. That's really worrying too. So um, we don't have a strong answer on this yet. It, it is something that needs to be properly considered. The ACCC is, is looking at some of that stuff. Um, but it's all I can really say is that you're onto an important area of research <laughs> and more power to you. Great question. So about, um, what about AI and jobs and, and the disruptive effect of AI on um, employment? Um, and the second part is, you know, would uh, UBI, Universal Basic Income, be a good response to that? Uh, the first thing I'd say is employment is such an important complex area and we are not looking at that um, in any depth, but we are listening to the community about it. Um, I was kind of reflecting a bit on something that, something in a sense infamous, famous, depending on your perspective, that Paul Keating said um, more than 20 years ago. He was basically asked by a journalist the question, you know, after major shift, a previous major shift in employment in Australia, where you know manufacturing jobs essentially kind of were largely offshored. Um, he, he was asked by a journalist, well, you know, what, what would you say to someone who lost their manufacturing job, lost their job in a factory? Um, and Keating's response, I'm paraphrasing, was essentially, well, look at the unemployment rate. It's, it's no greater now than it was. And so what I would say to them is, how do you like your new job? Um, and it was quite, there's no question, that was a pretty gutsy answer. Um, the thing that worries me about that is that there's a transition, even if that's right, even if there'll be new jobs that replace every old job. The transition is incredibly, can be at least, incredibly hard. And if it is unsupported, in other words, if you have a particular type of job that disappears and you're not helped to move to the new job, to become the AI jockey, as it were, um, that can be crippling. That can be, you know, that, that can lead to death as well as everything negative, less than death. Um, and so that's, that's something we're, we're deeply, deeply concerned about. But I am pleased to say that there are lots of other people looking at that issue, and that's one of the reasons why we're not going deep on it. Whether a UBI is a good response to that, I mean, we just haven't gone into the depth to reach a, a view about that as, a, as the Commission, but it is something we're looking at closely. So the question there was about um, the faith we put in technology, uh, new technologies, and particularly whether um, perhaps a more sophisticated response would be to have better harm mitigation um, techniques when things go wrong because you do need technology out there in the real world learning. Um, I think that's a good point. Um, I guess what, what's worrying me though, um, and this isn't a concluded view at all, but there's this trend that's been quite a powerful trend. It's, some of you will have heard of it. It's known as the MVP approach, the minimum viable product approach. And it's, it's come very much from the tech industry. And the idea is essentially that you don't spend you know, years and years and years trying to find and, and come up with the absolute best product. You just put a minimum viable product out there that you know will have lots of mistakes and bugs and stuff. And you iterate as you go and you see what happens um, when you go out there and you improve as you go and you basically make your customers also your um, test subjects. Um, now that in certain contexts is okay. Like if you're developing a new app for a smartphone that is basically a game, well, you know, the, the stakes are not high usually, I would imagine. Um, and so there's, no, there's not a lot of risk there. But if you're putting out a, a, an AI powered product or any product, right? Um, and you're saying, you know what? 
this product is not going to be accessible for, by, for people who have a disability. Um, but we're putting it out there and we'll fix that later. Um, it is not just wrong in law, though it is wrong in law. It is frankly offensive. It disgusts me, the, the idea that you can put out a product that you know will be in flagrant violation of, you know, say, the Disability Discrimination Act, and just say, but it's just a minimum vial product, we'll, we'll fix it later. Um, that, that's just totally unacceptable. So yes, we do need mitigating, um, uh, I guess, controls out there, but we also, and, and I think that's a, it's a really genuinely good idea, um, and we also need to be really careful about what level of development has kind of been achieved before we put stuff out there because you can cause harm. So yes, you do want to have it operating, these sorts of applications operating in something that, are, that, that is akin to the real world, if not the real world itself, but you need to have proper protections against harm um, even in that MVP stage. Great question um, from Sandra, um, and I'm smiling because it's just a simple question, I think, was how she framed it. It's incredibly important and, and not easy. Um, but essentially, you know, I think Sandra was saying that um, ethics are really important for us as humans. Um, how do we apply um, the importance of ethics um, in the context of AI and other new technologies? Um, and it's not easy. I mean, I guess the um, what, what, what uh, AI-powered decision-making systems are relatively good at is, making, is applying simple black and white, often binary rules. Um, and, you know, is it, uh, you, know, you, you know, is this a glass of water or is it a pumpkin? Um, that, that, those sort of rules. Um, and uh, it can do so obviously very cheaply as well, rather than actually asking a human to, to do that. Um, ethical principles, by contrast, are, I think the, the technical term for it is that they're, they're polycentric um, decisions. They're, they're things where you have to evaluate lots of different um, factors. It's not applying a black and white hard and fast rule. It's, it's actually asking a series of really, really difficult questions and then exercising some discretion over your ultimate response. Um, and that, that's not easy. <laughs> in fact, that's really, really hard um, for us as humans. And, and, and again, we need to acknowledge that humans don't always get that right. But, but whether it's right or, or not is difficult to discern. You need someone with great wisdom to, to make that decision. So trying to teach a piece of technology, uh, AI at this point, to make that sort of fine-grained ethical um, judgment is actually really difficult. Unless you can usefully and safely reduce that judgment down to a relatively simple black and white term. And that's where you know, the, the trolley bus um, kind of problem keeps on getting raised in the context of autonomous or self-driving cars. You know, the, the trolley bus problem being, you know, the car has to crash, it's basically got a choice in making a crash. Does it hit an elderly person or does it hit a child? Um, and if, as a society, we want to make a decision that it should always hit one or the other, then you can give it that, in a sense, ethical, um, you can program in that ethical choice. But that is so different from how we make ethical decisions. When we make ethical decisions, we're actually weighing up different things, and it's not the simple application of a black and white rule. That's, that, in a sense, is the opposite of ethics. Ethics is... is is much more fine-grained and complex and nuanced than that. And that is not something that I think in the level of AI that's been developed so far, 
we have the capability of programming. I'm going to abuse my position and just ask Ed one last, well, two-part question um, before we wrap up. Um, Ed, you and I were talking, well, we were talking earlier about um, what we're trying to focus on at the Whitlam Institute is the future of Australian democracy and also Australia, how Australia engages with the world. Now, this topic, I think, cuts across both of those areas um, in important ways. And we were talking earlier about this is one area where Australia has the potential um, and the capability to play a leading role globally in looking at how we tackle these kind of problems. Um, but the fact is we're not at the vanguard of this at the moment. So I wondered if you could share with us what are the best practices around the world and which countries are, are doing the most to try and grapple with these huge questions that some of which we talked about tonight. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a real opportunity for us in Australia. So we've, we've got to be realistic. Australia is a middle power. We, we have a population of about 30 million people. Um, we are not able to compete at the same scale as a country like the US or China. That's, that's just a fact. Um, however, as our community is starting to grow in its awareness and understanding of what is at stake, there's we're hearing loud and clear from the community a growing um, call, and it's probably stronger than that, a growing demand that um, AI be developed in ways that respect and protect our human rights. So if Australia, if Australian companies, the Australian government, Australian researchers in academic institutions like unis are able to say, well, we are going to be absolutely at the you know, vanguard, um, to use your term, of embedding human rights protections in how we develop AI, we would be doing the right thing. So that's, that should be the only motivation that's needed. But if you need more motivation than that, I realise I sound like uh, kind of a late night Demtel <laughs> TV <laughs> ad salesman. Yeah, right, so there's more. It, it's also, I think, really smart to do that. I think there will increasingly be a competitive advantage that um, companies and frankly countries will get from being known to develop AI in ways that protect people's human rights. Uh, and part of the controversy, and I don't want to get into it about Huawei, I guess goes to that distinction, right? Whether or not um, the general population may or may not rightly trust um, the technology to protect their privacy or whatever it happens to be. And then Similarly, um, when countries basically decide we want to be known for this particular thing, you've got to say it and you've got to do something about it. It was interesting in December at the G7, um, France and Canada announced a partnership where they said we want to be um, two of the countries that are known for developing AI, but in a, in a human-centric way, and they specifically referred to protecting their citizens and consumers' human rights. Um, and they put, I think it was $400 million um, behind it. Uh, and they're doing really good practical work. And, and I don't think they've crowded out the space, <laughs> I, I think. But I, I, I was really heartened to see two countries that, you know, have very similar kind of values to Australia saying, actually, we think this is right. We also think it's commercially smart. And so we're going to kind of put our money where our mouths are. And, and, I, and I think... Uh, I think there's real advantage to Australia doing something similar. 
Thank you so much. I, I don't know about you guys, but I can't believe that this is one of several issues you have to grapple with in your job on a day-to-day -day basis. It's such a huge issue and we could sit here for another couple of hours just talking about our own personal experiences or big issues keeping us up at night. So thank you for answering such a diverse set of questions and for being so open to the consultation. Um, would you join me in thanking Ed? Thank you for listening to the Whitlam Institute podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter as we continue Goff's work and in the great man's words, maintain your enthusiasm.